Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Maybe I should just say before we start, just sit, sitting here tonight, I feel a little melancholy. It's the end of a, the end of a, a semester, so to speak. So th- this year, since January, we had our New Year's retreat, and then we studied uh, Shanti Deva, uh, the guide to a Bodhisattva's way of life, which seemed to go on forever, and. Um, my son was born. He's like five months old now. Um, and uh, now a well-deserved break. So always uh, when something ends, I feel a little, oh. Um, so maybe it's fitting that we're going to talk about uh, the last words of Gautama Buddha tonight. So this is the eighth talk, I believe, in a series on uh, the core teachings of the Buddha. And I'd like to start with a quote from the Zen tradition that goes like this. Uh, Reaching the mystery is nothing but breaking through and grabbing an ordinary person's life. So reaching the mystery is nothing but breaking through. So you have to break through. But what do you grab? Just this ordinary life. So the mystical experience uh, turns out to be just uh, this present moment. Uh, And the faith that there's a way that um, we can be with ourselves Uh, and others that's not dictated uh, by fear and hesitation and jealousy. So what we touch when we wake up, what we touch when we go deep in our meditative practice is not some empty void, uh, but it's a life that's vibrant and creative. Not some nothingness. And so how do we uh, embody this aliveness without holding on too tight? So when you start to feel that joy, you don't hold on to it. <laughs> it's not yours. One of the characteristics the Buddha ascribes to someone who uh, has authentically entered the path 
he calls a stream enter, um, is that they're no longer dependent on the views of others. No longer dependent on the views of others. How I would translate that is that they can trust their experience. We talk a lot around here about letting go of fixed viewpoints, but maybe one thing we don't talk, or I don't talk about enough, is uh, also really trusting your viewpoint. When to really trust your perspective and not holding on to it at the same time. So when the Buddha says, really trust yourself, he's saying to go beyond belief and practice in a way that's, that, that reinforces autonomy. And that becomes the ground uh, for your life. When the Buddha was 80, um, he was traveling with two relatives uh, heading north in India in an area called Mala. And in a town called Pava, which is one of two two cities in the district, um, uh, he had dinner with a blacksmith named Kunda. And the blacksmith offered him a meal. Um, Many scholars debate uh, the translation of the terms uh, that are used to describe the meal. Uh, But it's pretty uh, obvious that it was likely um, uh, some kind of tender pork. And uh, the Buddha uh, ate the meal and then got sick. And then uh, his sickness um, got worse, and then he died. So uh, here is um, uh, the Buddha's last words, uh, as remembered by Ananda. Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. And now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this. For what I have taught and explained to you as Dhamma and the rule will at my passing be your teacher. So what I've taught is your teacher. Don't worry about me. Ananda, what does the order of monks expect of me? I have taught the Dhamma, Ananda, making no inner and no outer. The Tathagata, so that's the Buddha referring to himself when he says Tathagata, the Tathagata has no teacher's fist in respect of doctrines. If there's anyone who thinks I will take charge of the order, or the order should refer to me, let him or her make statements about the order But the Tathagata does not think in these terms. So why should I make a statement about the order? You can imagine the pressure on him at this time with such a huge sangha. Ananda, I am now old, worn out, venerable, and one who has traversed life's path. I have reached the end of my life, which is 80 Just as an old cart is made to go on by being held together with straps, 
so my body is kept going by being strapped up. It is only when the Tathagata withdraws his attention from outer signs and by the cessation of certain feelings, I enter into a signless concentration of mind. That's the only way I know comfort. So some of you who think that the Buddha didn't suffer, uh, actually, uh, he was suffering a lot. The Buddha, as an aside, he suffered from when he was young from ulcers. Uh, So he really knew pain in his body. So it's interesting that his death comes from uh, pain arising out of uh, digestion. And so he's, he's saying here, uh, it's only when I uh, bring my concentration really deep internal, away from signs, away from the outer world, that I can find some peace because I'm really suffering uh, from pain. That's the only way I know comfort, he says. Therefore, Ananda... So these are the Buddha's famous final words. Therefore, Ananda, you should live with oneself as an island, oneself as a refuge, with no other refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, and the Dhamma as a refuge, with no other refuge. This word refuge is really interesting. So we get the word fugitive. Right? So it's like this, this tendency to run away and then to come back. The return of the fugitive. Return of fugitive energy. So you should live with yourself as an island, as a refuge. No other refuge. You should live with the Dhamma, the teachings about reality, as a refuge. No other refuge. And how does a monk live like this? Here, Ananda, you abide contemplating the body as just a body. Clearly aware, mindful, putting aside all of your hankering and fretting about the world. Just experience the body as a body. And likewise, do the same with feelings, with mind, and everything else. Just experience feelings as feelings, mental states as mental states, and all of reality as all of reality. And those who now, in my time, or afterwards, live like this, they are noble if they're desirous of learning. So again, this is that move of the Buddha saying, you're noble not because of the class you're born into, but you're noble because of this practice. And then uh, his, his very last line, uh, conditioned things break down, tread the path with care. Conditioned things, which, as the Buddha has taught, is everything. Everything is unreliable. Everything is uh, breaking down. So uh, take care of the path. And what's the path? It's not separate from you. 
It's not separate from your life. What I hear the Buddha saying here is uh, take really good care of your life because it's so fragile. Human beings are so fragile. Have you ever seen an old person fall down? Think, wow, all this life you've been running or walking or hiking, lifting things. And then you see an old person so fragile. Or maybe uh, you've been sick or you are sick. And you can feel in your life just how fragile this is. And animals are so fragile. And our, our city is so fragile, actually. It seems not so fragile because we have uh, cars and big streetcars and you know, nuclear power stations. Uh, but actually, it's so fragile. I had this experience uh, once, twice now, actually being in an earthquake. And that was my first experience. After the earthquake, my first feeling was fragile. And also fragile because everything is changing. The things you love right now, you're going to dislike. And something that's also hard to feel is that what you hate also really deeply you also love. Maybe that's worse because we want to hold on to our hate. But actually what you hate you also really love. I was thinking about this uh, yesterday because uh, Lana was talking about growing up and uh, politics of Serbia. And now it's like a vacation destination. When I was in Japan uh, last year, there was this temple in the north of Kyoto that uh, is very famous for a window that is circular uh, in which many people have had an enlightenment experience looking out this window. So I rode my bicycle to this temple, and it was very hard to find in the suburbs. And a really beautiful temple. And I really liked the people who were taking care of the temple. And then uh, someone said to me, oh, you should uh, go into the hall and uh, sit. But when you sit, uh, look up and sit looking at the ceiling. So uh, I sat looking up at the ceiling. And in the wood, there are all these amazing patterns in the wood. And then uh, afterwards, I asked about, you know, what's special about the ceiling? And they said, oh, this ceiling is built from wood planks in the floor of the emperor's castle. And after a bloody murder, where hundreds and hundreds of people were slaughtered, uh, they took all the planks and they built a temple out of it. So actually, you can go to this temple in northern Kyoto, and um, if you look up, you see feet, you see arms, you see the sides of bodies, you see the sides of faces, where people were, were slaughtered. Uh, and then they took all these stained, bloody boards and made, made a temple. And now it's a place for making peace. I was reading about an artist in New York who is making Buddhas by taking uh, ammunition 
and melting them down and building uh, Buddha sculptures like this out of uh, melted ammunition. So impermanent and fragile. It's so easy to forget. And you can experience this, you know, uh, if you sit and you sit still uh, and you sit like a Buddha, then you'll feel the breath behind your navel. And uh, your heart will become more gentle. And you'll become more clear. And at first, you will be less stressed and less reactive. But one of the things I love about meditation is that even though it seems like there's a community and there's lots of teachers and there's uh, great texts, that actually the alpha and omega of the whole thing is that when you sit, you're teaching yourself. You're teaching yourself how to let awareness be just enough that your body can hold whatever it is you encounter. And it seems like the Buddha is trying to say this to Ananda. Ananda, don't cry. It's okay. All conditioned things, including our relationship and my body, they break down. But you have something to turn into that's a deeper resource. That's an island. Take refuge in that island. And one of the things that's always puzzled me about this, and probably already you've thought about it, is that in the Buddha Dharma, there are three refuges. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Community. And he doesn't say anything about Sangha here in his last words. Maybe it's obvious. Or maybe in the circumstances, they've left the Sangha. When you sit and you feel your breath behind your navel, for a while, you'll experience monkey mind. Distraction. Now we call it hyperactivity disorder. And then you'll experience attention deficit, where you'll probably space out or nod off. And then when you sit in community, you'll experience a whole spectrum of feelings. And the nice thing about sitting with other people is that it maintains the form in a strong enough way that you just have to sit there. If you were at home, maybe you would get up and you would go to the freezer. So I encourage you when you sit here that you use the energy of other people to take refuge in yourself, to have something so deep to trust. Not trying to look good or look the part, but actually to practice hard, to really go for it. I wanted to tell you a story about Bodhidharma because I think it connects in with what the Buddha is trying to say here. 
Bodhidharma, by the way, is supposedly the founder of Zen. Uh, He is the person who brought Buddha's teachings from India uh, to China. And when he got to China, he met an emperor named Emperor Wu. And the emperor said to Bodhidharma, what are the holy teachings? And Bodhidharma said, uh, unholy, nothing. And confused, the emperor then said to Bodhidharma, well, then who are you? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. Can you imagine this? You've gone from India to China, which is a dangerous uh, and very long route. You get there and you meet the emperor in the prefecture who's sponsoring you uh, to build temples and is interested in the teachings. Uh, And instead of giving him all the sutras and all the, you know, the eightfold path, the four noble truths and this, it's immediate. What is the holy teaching? It's nothing holy. Well, then who are you? I don't know. Wouldn't it be so nice to do this at a party? <laughs> like when somebody says, so what do you do? Or who, who are you? I don't know. <laughs> we can try this at the potluck on Friday night. <laughs> Maybe we should all dress like Bodhidharma. He had no eyebrows and he had big eyes. And we could have a Bodhidharma party. He told the emperor who, he had no idea who he was. Not that he doesn't know, but that he can't know. Then uh, he went to Shaolin uh, and famously sat facing the wall for eight years. At home, I sit facing a wall. Just uh, two feet from a wall. Uh, In North American uh, practice, uh, people don't sit facing the wall as much anymore. We like to face each other. But there is something about facing the wall where it's just you and the wall. Like a mirror. And uh, when you sit facing the wall, my favorite thing about it is very quickly your eyes get unfocused. So your eyes are open, but they're unfocused. And it's just you and mind. Until those things are not separate. So one day, uh, someone came to Bodhidharma uh, and wanted to be his student. And Bodhidharma didn't want to have any students. I I encourage you, if any of you have seen uh, images of Bodhidharma, he's really rough. Uh, Like, you look at him and you can tell he doesn't want any students. (laughs) And uh, this student named Wiko came to Bodhidharma and said, uh, please teach me. And Bodhidharma said, go away. I don't want any students. Next day, Wiko came back and said, please, please teach me the Dharma. And Bodhidharma said, you're just one of those people who wants to get enlightened. Go away. Don't come back. I don't have time for you. So the next day, Wiko came back, and he cut off his arm, and he handed it to Bodhidharma and said, I really want to study with you. And Bodhidharma said, 
Okay, what do you want? (laughs) And he said, my mind is so crazy. Help me put my mind to rest. Have you ever felt like this? You just want to cut off your mind? (laughs) My mind is so crazy. Help me put it to rest. I love these kind of questions. They're so vulnerable. Now they're great stories, but if you can imagine being in this position. You know, uh, it was an Asian tradition that when you really want to go deep in something, you have to uh, cut something off. There's a story uh, that Robert Aitken tells about one of his students in Hawaii, how she she wanted to be a nun. So uh, when she was at the age where she could be a nun, against her family's wishes, she cut off her ring finger. And uh, about 60 years later, she was interviewed. And it's a beautiful interview. And, And she said, in retrospect, she said, I'm glad that that's all I had to give up to do what I really wanted to do. Listen, that wasn't such a big thing uh, to give up, to do what I really wanted to do. So that's what this, this Wiko is saying to Bodhidharma. So Wiko says, help me put my mind to rest. And so Bodhidharma says, okay, go find your mind and bring it to me and I'll put it to rest. So Wiko leaves and these stories are always funny because you never know like how long. They say Wiko leaves and he comes back. But was it one night where he practiced all night? Or was it one month? Or was he gone for a few years? You don't know. That's usually uh, when students have their breakthroughs. Is... Uh, right after getting a teaching, not usually during the teaching, but right afterwards they're walking out the door or we've had an interview together and they've been stuck, you know, and they're walking out the door and right there they get it. Because you're not expecting it. So he's gone who knows for how long. And then he comes back and he says, I've looked everywhere and I can't find my mind. And Bodhidharma says, there, I've put it to rest. So he was so close, and then Bodhidharma just put it to rest for him. What is this mind that you think is so personal, this life that's so personal? This is what the Buddha is saying. How can you feel your body just as a body? Our body is always uh, too fat, too thin, too tall, not this, not that. Or we always relate to our body as sick, as old, as healthy, as vibrant, as energetic. But can you experience your body just as a body? I mean, this is obviously a, the most important teaching if the Buddha is saying this as his last words. And then if you can do it with your body, he's saying, what about if feelings are just feelings? Good luck with that. <laughs> Maybe that's the hardest for most of us, is we define our identity by our emotional life and what we uh, don't want 
but just to really be with mind, feelings. Ah, it's so painful. You ever have this when you're sick? When you're sick. Does anybody have one of those flus in the past couple years where it's like in your joints? And you think, if I just had that one key, I could unlock this, you know. But just to be with that. I think I say the same thing every week. (laughs) You know, there are so many ways to hear the Dharma. Sometimes I give a talk and it's like a cheerleading talk. Trying to like encourage you and get some energy in your practice. A pep talk. Dharma pep talk. And sometimes I give a talk where I'm offering some really beautiful sutra. Or some really excellent poem. Or sometimes I'm in a bad mood and you have to say, what is he going on about? Because really, I, I, know, I know what we're doing here. But the most important part uh, is that all these talks are leading back to your heart and your life. So, to sum up, there are uh, some very unique things characteristics that the Buddha taught that are unique to Gautama Buddha that don't seem to have um, an ancestry prior to the Buddha. Uh, One is what the Buddha mentions in his last sentence here, conditioned arising. That what the Buddha woke up to is that everything arises in conditions. that nothing is born alone. That everything that's born, moment to moment to moment, is born in conditions, and those conditions are not separate from you. It's not like there's a you experiencing these changing conditions. You are those conditions that are changing. The second thing the Buddha taught that is unique is the Four Ennobling Truths that we need to embrace dukkha, embrace difficulty. That we need to let go of grasping. That we need to stop and experience the cessation of craving. and that we need to act. I think so many uh, modern forms of meditative uh, teachings, uh, not to name names, but like, I feel this way about Eckhart Tolle. (laughs) (laughs) Is everything's good until this last point of letting go, and then this one last piece is missing which is the force of action. We have to do something that everything you do makes a difference. We can't just observe our life going by or we turn into cardboard. 
that when you're in touch with the vibrancy of your own life, it's not passive, it's active. The third teaching that the Buddha gave that is unique to the Buddha is mindfulness. That you can be mindful of the body as a body, mindful as breathing, just as breathing. We all know this when you sit. When you sit, the more intimate you become with the feeling of your breath, the less personal it is. And maybe you could say the same with anything. The more intimate you become with this body, the less personal it is. The more intimate you become with feeling, the less personal it is. Just joy. It's not yours. Just feeling joy. It's conditioned, and it changes. And lastly, and this might be one of the most important pieces, is that the Buddha thought of himself as a doctor not as the creator of a religion. He thought of himself as a doctor. Always coming back to how we're experiencing our lives. Not a belief system, but the Buddha's teaching starts, and doctor, I might say psychologist. Maybe not, I don't know. The Buddha's teaching starts with perception. How are you perceiving experience? Or we might say, how do you perceive your own awakenness? Your nature. Your self-nature. Your uniqueness. Your light. There's a story about a student named Weichao who asks a teacher named Fayan, what is Buddha? What is Buddha? Someone asked me today, you know, I've been teaching, some of you know, all day today and and yesterday. And at the end of the class today, someone is is feeling upset about uh, the intensive that we're doing because... um, Uh, They're experiencing it as uh, too religious. All the bowing, a Buddha on the altar, and so on. So uh, she said, uh, I I didn't come here thinking that I was joining a religion. Is this a religion? And I said, uh, no. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, uh, well, what am I bowing to then? Because uh, I don't bow to idols. So I said, where's the idol? What idol do you see? And she said, the Buddha. So I said, what's the Buddha? And she said, an idol. And I said, oh, you have to look deeper than that. She didn't like that very much. (laughs) But she'll be back. So this is a similar kind of story. So Wee Chow asked Fayan, um, what is Buddha? And Fayan says, you are Wee Chow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Jordan asked, 
what's Buddha? And I would say, you're Jordan. <laughs> Amy, what's Buddha? You're Amy. You're David. You're Andrew. You're Benoit. <laughs> I, I just I want to go through the whole room. <laughs> you're Sarah. Rita. Aaron. Isn't that a beautiful story? What's Buddha? Your mic. Did you forget? <laughs> In Zen, we call this great faith. Great faith means uh, not turning your head away, not separating. If you think that's the Buddha, you've totally missed it. Um, I wanted to read you uh, about the Buddha's death. Um, uh, I took some liberties and rewrote uh, the sutra uh, describing the Buddha's death. So uh, maybe you can just get comfortable, and, and this is my version. Not that comfortable. <laughs> In his last hours, Gotama Buddha has sharp pains through his abdomen and up through his neck. He's 80. His companion Ananda puts water on his feet and holds his hand as the Buddha sweats and his abdomen cramps. Ananda goes back and forth to a nearby stream, hauling small jugs of water to the bedside. Gotama knows this pain. He's had ulcers his whole life, but this is worse. Just a day earlier, when he knew he was falling ill, the Buddha asked his companion, Ananda, to prepare a couch for him in a sala grove between two trees, with his head to the north. The Buddha is wearing fresh robes and his skin is tender. After lying motionless for hours, he asks Ananda for water and needs help to raise it to his lips. Ananda's tears fall in the dust, making patterns like stucco. The evening air is warm and the Buddha slips in and out of consciousness. Ananda sprinkles water on the surface of his skin. The dark is thickening. Don't cry. Gotama whispers. Ananda looks at the Buddha's glossy eyes, flushed face, and feverish skin. His hands are cold and clammy to Ananda's touch. Ananda, now you need to live with yourself as an island, as a refuge, with nothing else as a refuge. You need to trust yourself. Ananda considers the Buddha's words and puts the water jug down. He recalls the Buddha teaching that one should take refuge in the three treasures, the Buddha, in life, and in community. But now Buddha is saying something totally different. Take refuge in yourself, Ananda, and also in the Dharma, in the truth of reality. Make this truth your refuge and no other refuge. How? Ananda asks softly. 
Ananda, contemplate your body as a body. It's just a body. Feel how your body is just a body right now, Ananda. Only now. Feel how your body is only a body. Be clear, aware, mindful. Put aside your craving and fretting for the world. And do the same with feelings and thoughts. Feelings are just feelings, Ananda. Thoughts are thoughts, Ananda. They break down. Your feelings, your thoughts change. They are not so real. They are only feelings and thoughts. And this, Ananda, is everything I've taught. Ananda, are you listening? This is everything I know. I'm telling you now. Everything you're attached to is passing. The Buddha stops speaking and closes his eyes, shifts on to his right side and loosens his robe with his left hand. Ananda, conditioned things break down. Tread the path with care. Ananda feels a calm he hasn't felt in 40 years, but he doesn't understand exactly what Gotama means. How to be an island to himself? Distinct, but at the mercy of water? Ananda swallows his tears. They catch the inside of his throat. He coughs, and then the Buddha's eyes close. The pause after the Buddha's exhale has been lengthening with each breath and now expands to fill the entire grove. Shadows curl around the low bed and the candle goes out. The hills are silent, and the silence drowns out all sounds. An island, like a body, is a fleeting thing. How can I take refuge in that, Ananda reaches for the Buddha's hand. The Buddha never spoke carelessly. To take refuge in myself is to take refuge in everything. To trust myself is to trust everything. The Buddha is dead. Ananda pictures the deaf student who came to visit the Buddha last month and the old woman who lost her sons. He remembers thinking that they needed to take care of themselves, to trust themselves, and how the Buddha gave them so much confidence in their ability to see and feel and inhabit their lives, even in pain. Over the next days, there will be a trickle of visitors to the grove where the Buddha died. Ananda will realize the Buddha's words, everything breaks down. Tread the path with care. Nothing is certain, and this is a refuge. Ananda studies his hands. As Ananda looks at his hands, he thinks, this is what he taught me. This is what he gave me. He is gone. I love you. Ananda cries. Okay, that's the story. I'm not done. In the rainy season after the Buddha died, um, the Buddha's closest companions were brought in uh, to try and remember uh, the Buddha's teachings. Uh, but Ananda, because he was the Buddha's closest companion, and I have to say as an aside, like 
When I study the Buddha's life, I don't connect so much with the Buddha. So much of his life I don't connect with so much. But I really connect with Ananda. And Ananda is the only person in the Buddha's close circle who doesn't get enlightened in the Buddha's lifetime. But he's devoted. Um, So they bring in Ananda uh, to help uh, remember the teachings. Uh, But there's a story uh, when this is described in the Pali Canon. You can look this up, by the way. It's uh, the 108th verse of the Middle-Length Discourses, Majjhima Nikaya called the Gopaka Mogalana Sutta. Here's how the story goes. Uh, This is within a year of the Buddha's death. Ananda is walking around the town begging for alms. And he's spotted by this man, Gopaka Gopaka Mogalana, who was a minister uh, for the king. And he was in charge of fortifying the city uh, because there was going to be attack from another king. And uh, he invites Ananda to come to his compound and talk with him. And he says to Ananda, Ananda, is there any single monk who has all the qualities of Gotama? Ananda says, no, uh, there is not a single monk who has all the qualities of Gotama Buddha. Ananda is there any single monk who Gotama said you should take refuge in? Uh, no, there's no single monk appointed by the Buddha in that way. Ananda, is there any monk appointed by the community or the elders in the community that should be our refuge? And Ananda says no. Uh, the Buddha did not say that there was any other monk who you should take refuge in, uh, or that we should follow the advice of the elders of the community, that there is one person or a few people that we should take refuge in. If there is no one to go for refuge, then how do you find agreement? And Ananda says, we are not without refuge. The Dharma is our refuge. So you can see here this kind of pressure uh, right after the Buddha's death of these ministers who are basically saying, who's in charge here? (laughs) So then a council is convened uh, in one reign after the Buddha's death. And Ananda is brought in in front of the assembly uh, by Mahakashyapa and then is asked in front of the assembly, Ananda... You could see the pressure on this poor guy? Ananda, before the Buddha died, did he not say that we could relinquish some of the minor rules? Ananda says, yes. Ananda, did you ask him what those rules are? Ananda says, no, I did not. <laughs> then Mahakashyapa says, Ananda... That is a mistake. Is that a mistake? Can you confess that that is a mistake? It's a mistake on Ananda's part not to have asked him. Well, what are the rules that you can let go of? Ananda says, I believe in what we are all doing here. If you think it's a mistake, 
I'll admit to it as a mistake because I believe in what we're all doing here. But I don't think I did anything wrong. You see that he's, he's not sure how to handle it. I really believe in what we're all doing here. So I'm going to say, if you really feel that I've made a mistake, then yes, I admit I've made a mistake. But I, in my reflection, so he's, he's learning to trust himself. I don't think I've done anything wrong. Mahakashyapa's not done. Ananda, was it you that persuaded the Buddha to allow women into the Sangha? Uh, yes, Mahakashyapa, it was me. I persuaded the Buddha to allow women to practice equally with men. Mahakashyapa says, uh, Ananda, that too was a mistake. Ananda says, I don't think it's a mistake to have women in the Sangha. I believe in what we're doing here as a community, but if you think that is a mistake, then I will admit that that's a mistake. But I don't think I did anything wrong allowing women into the Sangha. Anyways, it goes on and on. Uh, You could read the sutra. They really uh, put pressure on him. Uh, Then Ananda goes uh, and recites all the teachings of the Buddha. So the whole Pali canon that we have is Ananda just remembering and remembering and remembering everything the Buddha taught him. And you can hear so often, and that's why I mention this, that right after the death of the Buddha, there is a clear conflict between the institutionalization of the teachings and the spirit of the Buddha's teachings. Maybe that's why the Buddha didn't stress Sangha as a refuge. Uh, maybe he knew that Sangha also is a conditioned thing. I remember the first time, or maybe it was the second time Stephen Batchelor came here to teach our Sangha. Uh, I was talking about uh, how much you know energy I put into this and so on. And he had this idea. He said, you're building a new website, right? I said, yes. And he said, that's a mistake. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he said, you're building a new website. He's like, what if you uh, built in to your sangha, uh, a, a timer that was uh, decreasing back to zero so that your community had an expiry date because every community eventually goes bad and eventually comes apart. So he says, so why not set up your community? So it's like in 2021, it's, we're just going to end it. And then he says, and you could have like a little clock on your website, and it's counting down. And I said, I don't think that would be very good for the donations. <laughs> so it seems like, uh, to sum up, that this ending is so important that what you do for refuge is you take refuge in your experience. It begins and ends with your experience. In other words, subjectivity is so much more important than having a belief system that comes first. Weichow asks, what's the Buddha? Payan says, you're Weichow. Or the Buddha says to Ananda, conditioned things break down, tread the path with care.
And isn't it interesting how the teachings of the Buddha that shine, like these old Zen stories I've been telling you for a few weeks that shine, are all in relationship. They're dialogue. They're not sermons. They're all stories about how people attuned to each other and passed the teachings down, warm heart to warm heart. When someone asked me today, what is the Buddha? And I said that it wasn't an idol. It didn't connect with her. So that's not skillful means on my part. So now I have work to do. So upaya, our skillful means in practice, is how we can attune to each moment. Because there's nothing except relationship. So thank you very much.